Welcome to the Raising Cinephiles podcast, a show about passing on your love of cinema to the next generation. I'm your host, Jessica Cantor, and I have worked in all facets of the entertainment industry for the last 20 years, and recently became a mom. This week, our guest is the twice Emmy-nominated producer, Nicholas Hatton. We discuss how everyone creating jury duty was treated with care and hopes to continue to make film and television with that idea in mind. We also discuss how he wants to pass on the joy he gets from experiencing cinema and television to his daughter. Always remember that myself and guests are speaking from personal experience, not giving parenting advice. Let's go ahead and dive into the episode. Hello and welcome back to the Raising Cinephiles podcast. This is your host, Jessica Cantor, and today I am here with Nicholas Hatton. He is a twice Emmy-nominated producer currently for Jury Duty, which is hilarious and heartwarming, currently on Amazon, and I am so excited to have you here today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I deliberately sabotaged our first attempt to record this because I wanted you to say twice Emmy-nominated multiple times, so... I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> To to the power of two, right? Not yes. even times two. Yes. <laughs> awesome. So first question, what is your first movie memory? Right. My first movie memory is probably the animated movie, All Dogs Go to Heaven. And it sticks in my mind because my eldest brother, who's 14 years older than me, I'm the youngest of three by, by a bit of a distance. He would have a friend who was originally from the Middle East, and his friend would essentially smuggle in pirated VHSs of all the movies that were in the in in the cinemas at the time. And they are very clearly ripped movies. Someone went into some theater in the Middle East and put a camera up there and just recorded what was on screen and just used like the onboard mic to capture whatever sound they could. And so it looked terrible. It sounded god awful. But I just fell in love with it, fell in love with the characters, fell in love with the story. And I do remember looking back, some of that movie was pretty pretty nightmarish, pretty scary, some elements of it as well. And that kind of stayed with me. But that was probably my first experience. And I must have watched that movie into the ground until the tape was completely ruined. My first real memory of being in a cinema and like getting excited about going to a theater and really looking forward to it, I remember this vividly, was Kevin Reynolds' Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, starring Kevin Costner and Morgan Freeman and Alan Rickman, RIP. And I remember in the UK, where I was growing up at the time, everyone was very excited about it. There was a song that went with it by Brian Adams, which I think was number one in the UK for 40 weeks or something insane. So it was a real cultural phenomenon, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And I've probably watched that film in excess of 20 times. And you know what? It's still fun as heck. Kevin Reynolds knew his way around directing an action sequence. I could quote obscure lines from that thing until the day that I die. And I do not mind Kevin Costner's completely American accent one bit. I, I love the <laughs> heck out of that movie. And it was fantastic and magical. And being a, a British person, it was this kind of this Hollywood representation of British history and stuff, which felt very cool. I, I, yeah, th those are probably my first two strongest memories movie wise. I haven't thought about that movie in a long time, but I do remember seeing it in the theater. I do. And I remember that Brian Adams song. And I do really think it might have been one of those songs at your school dance where, you know, you dance <laughs> like arm length apart and went back mm -hmm. and forth. That's how I remember that song. Yeah. yeah. So you're the youngest of three by quite a bit. And I, there's a theme that pops up that youngest siblings tend to see inappropriately advanced movies for their age. 
Was that true for you? Yes, very vividly. I remember watching Predator way too young because my brothers were watching it and that messed me up for a while. And because where I lived, it was a very wooded, foresty area. And I remember trying to go to sleep the night that I watched Predator and outside my window were just all these freaking tall trees. And the Predator was, of course, stationed in my mind in those trees, staring at me, making the clicky noise, waiting to evaporate me. That scared the living heck out of me very early on. That was probably the most inappropriate one to begin with. And that really stuck with me. And it scared the, the living hell out of, <laughs> out of me. <laughs> and my brothers just didn't really care one, one bit because that's what older brothers do. They just bully the youngest, essentially. And your so did your parents ever step in with your movie watching it's really not them i will say this they the tradition that i had which was i think ingrained sort of my passion of movies and tv was if i'd behaved well in school that week i would be allowed on friday afternoon after school is finished my mum would drive me to the local mum and pop essentially vhs uh, you know blockbuster but it wasn't a blockbuster and I, if I was really well behaved, I could pick two movies. And generally, even from the age of, I'm really doing my parents a disservice here, even from the age of around, I would say, eight or nine, they would allow me to get 15s. Like I remember watching, was it Air America? Is that the one with... Wait, what with is, is 15s like? PG-13? 15, 15, yeah. So, so the classification system was different in the UK. Yeah. So 15 meant if you went to see it in a theatre... You could be carded, and if you were under the age of 15, you couldn't get in. It didn't matter if you had an older person with you. They could shepherd you in like, the, like you could with ours in the U.S. So in the U.K., it was actually harder as an underage person to go and see adult movies, unlike in the U.S., as long as you had an adult vouch for you, you were basically okay. So yeah, 15 was like the upper limit. Eight, excuse me, 15 was the, uh, the second highest classification, and then 18 was... Um, so for example, any Tarantino movie would be an 18, for example. Mm-hmm. And then there was like a, a, an X-21 or something, which no one ever... We're never in movies anyway, outside of like pornographic theatres in central London. But so like a 15 was what I'd be... The max that I'd be allowed which is usually, you know, a bit of violence, a bit of blood, that kind of stuff. And I used to really love just plowing through action movies and then things like that. And uh, yeah, my parents, luckily for me, didn't, weren't hovering too closely over me and let me have those experiences. And I don't think I'm too corrupted as a result. I think I'm okay. <laughs> I've, I've done all right. Yeah. I had a, my parents let me have a TV in my room from a young age, as long as I did my homework and whatnot, and I got good grades. So, you know, the 90210s and the... <laughs> my so-called life and then i would watch a lot of classic movies on tnc mm. and all of that stuff so i but, wish yeah. i would have been allowed a tv that was i wasn't allowed that until i went to college that was that was a step too far that's how i yeah. ended that freedom <laughs> i know it's also a theme of anybody i would say over 25 even 20 I haven't nobody I've not interviewed anyone under that because they don't have children yet for the most part Mm. but like our parents weren't as savvy to the harm media could do to us (laughs) like we are now of how it's everywhere I'd also say that you know the internet social media has obviously wasn't around when you know certainly wasn't around when I was growing up and I think that's an exponential increase in harm and unfiltered content, where at least you always knew if you're watching, if you're renting videos or if you're watching something on cable or whatever like that, there's still a certain, there's a filtration process, right? Like the FC dictates what you can or cannot see on like broadcast or cable or similarly, any video that you can get from a reputable store has the appropriate classification and anything too extreme, you probably can't get in there. 
problem obviously in the internet is that all you need to do is type in a certain combination of letters into the search bar and you can find anything you want and obviously mm -hmm. young inquisitive minds will do that and with us I, you know, I'm I think what's considered an old millennial for us we almost immediately knew more about the internet than our parents did and certainly knew more about how to gain access to it how to manipulate it how to deal with parental guards and all that kind of stuff so yeah truly I had unfettered access to the internet and I would say that if I think about like deleterious or not cool things that I've ever seen in my life, it's definitely almost entirely come from those early internet days, as opposed to any of the stuff that I was watching as a kid on, like I say, on TV or on a video rental. Yeah. And since you were allowed to choose what you're watching, how do you think you developed your taste? That's a good question. Honestly, I, my, so my sort of pathway in, not pathway in, but I guess the first steps of me becoming like a movie TV enthusiast, and that's ultimately what I am. I so as certain I was heading into my like late teens and twenties that I was like a nerd. You could ask me like trivia questions about movies and TVs and I would take pride in, you know, finding obscure answers. And my middle brother, Chris, he would have, a, he got, had a subscription to Empire Magazine. And Empire felt like this very cool magazine, which was a sort of combined serious, like proper journalism and proper articles and reviews with also access to the biggest movies and all that kind of thing. And I remember vividly that my brother, they used to have the one page posters scattered throughout as you're reading it, you know, mm -hmm. and my brother to decorate his bedroom would essentially cut out the one page and then stick them up. And so he just had poster walls everywhere. And so that meant, of course, that I too had to have poster walls because you always want to follow what your brothers do. And as a result of that, I would start reading Empire very young. And I would always be on the lookout for whatever the next big movies were, the things that they were talking about. And that would be the thing where I'd circle in my diary and be like, that comes out on video rental in two months or whatever. And that guided me. And I actually, I remember, weirdly enough, the one movie that I kept coming back to the blockbuster for, because they didn't have it in stock, I kept coming back too early, repeatedly, I'd ask them the same question, week after week, is it here, is it here, was Death Becomes Her. And I don't I know that. why, as a young boy, I was just obsessed with, I have to see this movie, Death Becomes Her. And but that was the one that uh, stuck in my head massively. Also, that movie is probably do a remake at some point if it's not already happening. But yeah, love that movie. And I remember being very obsessed with it. But generally speaking, I think I was probably molded by, by like I say, empires, whatever was hot with them at that moment, whatever they were was trending with them, yeah. whatever they were pushing. I don't know if that would work as a remake. Like, Why? it's just, it's quirkier. I mean, I guess you make quirky content, so maybe you're yes. the right person to do it. But it's quirkier than, like, the budget that movie would want mm -hmm. that I think you could get today. I mean, I yeah. love that movie so much. I think I put clips in it and, like, reels of things that I've been trying to get made. But just, I think it's so clever when they were painting their faces. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, chipping off and... I don't know if you've rewatched it recently, but... You know, yeah. I, I haven't. I still vaguely remember, you know, the, the, it felt like a step forward in terms of VFX, as well as obviously mm -hmm. combining practical stuff, but it felt like Brave New World VFX-y type things. And yeah. I remember being amazed by that as a kid. And I think that clunkiness of the VFX made it work better. Like, I, right. I'd be shocked if it was, like, if they could really... I mean, I guess maybe there's a sci-fi version of it. Right. Maybe. Right. Yeah, that could like, work. Where they can use AR to change their faces or something. Or maybe that's a Black Mirror episode. But the, yeah, that one also, and 
at that era, did you have the Burbs? Was that a big one for you? Did you the, I did watch the Burbs. I haven't watched it lots of times, but I did watch the Burbs. Early Hank, like Big, I watched Big was obviously big for us mm-hmm. growing up, but that, that stayed with me a lot. You know, that's the John Hughes era of filmmaking as well. It was very formative and that mix of fun comedy you know generally pretty good set pieces and pacing and all that kind of stuff you know there was i i I missed that a little bit as well i think there's not as much i think there isn't as much invention going on in mainstream comedy cinema right now i think a lot of stuff is somewhat generic and slightly paint by numbers i think part of that might be to do with the advent of streamers and the need to just put a bunch of stuff on their platforms and just get through things. Yeah. And what they've done is standardize the production process in terms of kind of cameras you use and the scope of camera work and all that kind of thing. So it feels like everything's been slightly homogenized a little bit, but it's funny. I was rewatching Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz the other night, a movie that I've watched a million times. And I used to work with the producer, Naira Park, who's my mentor and my first sort of hero. She produced that movie and the rest of the Cornetto trilogy. And just rewatching that movie, there is not a single scene that you can tell Edgar has attacked with intention between the writing, the performance, the camera movement, the editing, the sound design. Everything is unbelievably intentional. And he is milking comedy from every single access that he put, access point that he probably can, possibly can. And uh, I'm not sure. Obviously, he's a genius. He's not everyone can be like Edgar Wright. But it did make me pine for a few, for a bit more, I don't know, sometimes a bit more vision, maybe a bit more like authorship, making really sense that there was a singular filmmaker making that movie. It was his vision. And you yeah. see that expressed on screen for better or worse. I and mean, in that instance, obviously for better. And I, I, I miss that a little bit. Yeah. Having these conversations and walking down memory lane a lot about kind of what makes it to theaters and... Jaws were coming out today the way it was made then it would it's like an indie film Mm. right and then the the way they remake it is like what is it the peg or what there's like the The peg's a very different movie yes equally thrilling and scary at the same time but yeah the meg is the meg's yeah it's a really good it's a very good analogy because uh, yeah it's essentially taking away all the practical stuff and just replacing it entirely with vfx and hoping for the best and uh, I, I have to say i was watching yeah i watched a lot of the marvel movies especially as they built up to the sort of the end of the avengers Thanos, and all that kind of stuff and i've been so i still catch up with the latest ones and i, I was watching ant-man the latest ant-man thing and i just thought i felt really sorry for the actors like very early on because i was like how many times did you even see anything other than a green wall around you you're, on, you're there for like 118 days just acting against nothing and i yeah i do pine for practical effects i do i still i prime for i, I pine for miniature units because i do very ardently believe that you cannot replace there is a difference between practical and vfx and people whether they are conscious of it or it's affecting their subconscious do relate to things differently if they have a sense that it's really there or that it's not unless it's done so yeah. perfectly and uh, and I- I think there's going to be a re-revolution of practical as AI starts to impede on our entertainment and it'll be a genre of itself, the kind of AI content. But, you know, I think human talking about the human condition is what makes movies and television so appealing to everyone. And so I do think there's going to be a want and need for real human stories. And I've been asking 
parents of teenagers, like what they do now, you know, like we used to go to the movies and hang out and like, what do they stay home and play video games? They hang out in the house. Do they have a place they can congregate like the arcade games that were in the lobby of the theaters when I was growing up? So I, that's like a big concern I, I have for my son as he gets older of what is movie going going to be like for our kids? As they are, there going to be movies for them to go see in the theater, or is it all going to be on streaming? Or am I going to take them to museums? <laughs> I mean, I'm hopeful that they will. I think there's always something to be said for the communal experience and witnessing spectacle together, and be it mm-hmm. whether you're laughing together with strangers or whether you're gasping together with strangers or what have you. I think there's still a power to that. And thank you know, if anything, Taylor Swift has shown us the power that there is something to be said for. Like, yes, she is obviously she's one of the biggest pop stars in the history of, of mankind. But she shows that you can bring together millions and millions of people for a live spectacle as long as it's good enough. And I think over the last couple of years, even with, if you're looking at Top Gun, if you then look at Barbie, if you do find ways, because those are both like top, well made movies. Mm-hmm. And if you can combine spectacle with just good old fashioned storytelling, it, it will find an audience. An audience will come out and watch it and then they'll tell their friends, hey, I had this great experience. Will you go and watch it as well? And uh, so I'm still hopeful, but what that does for the sort of the middle class indie drama kind of thing, I don't know, but I'm, who knows? I will say this time is a flat circle. We end up coming back to the place that we left. And so who knows what's going to happen in the future, but I'm hopeful. Yeah. I'm hopeful that they break away the producers from the distributors again and Mm. reapply that logic to streamers so Mm. that we can have a fair competition in the industry and, and then we could have runaway indie hits like Little Miss Sunshine and, yeah. and Sex Lies and Videotapes that kind of started it all, right? But yeah, okay. So my next question before I move on a little bit more to our kiddos is, do you? when did you know you wanted to work? Well, this is a two-parter, so you'd be prepared to monologue for a moment. When did you know you wanted to work in the industry and does the content you make match your taste? Good question. So I knew I wanted to work in the industry towards the end of my first year in college. So the end of my freshman year in college, I was doing a double major in history and economics. And I did that because that was like a sensible degree, like a degree that adults get and that my parents who were quite very unbelievably supportive people and I owe them everything, but quite strict in a way as well. I had quite a, a relatively strict upbringing outside of them not monitoring the videos that I was watching. And it was very much, if I'd ever expressed as a younger person, the idea of, oh, movies, Hollywood, they'd be like, shut up. That's for make-believe people who aren't real. That's not a real job. And so I did economics and history. And then my first year, I had only dived deeper and deeper into movies and older movies and, and really just becoming obsessed with it as I entered college. And I remember towards the end of my first year that before a lecture started, everyone around me was talking about their upcoming internships at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Lynch or or all these different places and talking about how, you know, the compensation and and the fabulous money and all this kind of stuff. And I remember thinking like, there's got to be something else going on other than just getting paid lots of money. There has to be some sort of joy in the thing, right? And I decided in that moment, if I was going to do something about this and follow this passion, I should stop doing that now. And so that was the end of my first year in college. And then from there, I ended up, that's what led me to essentially apply to to film school. And luckily enough, I ended up going to USC, which is a, an incredible film school. And that sort of everything went from there. That's how I started. What was the second bit of the question? If what you're making matches your taste. Yeah, I think it 
does. I've been really lucky, to be honest, in that, you know, of, you know, I've, of the things I've most re- recently produced, you know, Who is America on Showtime, Borat, subsequent movie film for Amazon, and then Jury Duty for Freebie, you know, the first two obviously in collaboration with Sasha Baron Cohen, and I worked with him because I wanted to work with him. I worked with him because I, I thought and think that he is a, a comedy genius. I think he's a singular talent. I don't think there's anyone in the world who can do what he does. And I remember, talk about memories, I remember watching the VHS of Borat for the first time and losing my goddamn mind because it was so insane and so funny and it made me feel so both laughing and this existential pain at the same time, this incredibly cringeworthy, insane kind of experience headed in my direction. I wanted, yeah, the opportunity when it came around to actually work with Sasha was one that I couldn't, I couldn't deny because also his worldview in many ways is similar to mine in terms of, you know, ultimately Sasha is a modern satirist. He's someone who sees sucky things in the world and wants to address them with comedy. And he's fearless in terms of putting his face right up against the things that he opposes. And that's the nature of mm-hmm. his interviews and his work. So yeah, I was very proud to be associated with those projects. And Jury Duty is maybe the most personal thing I've ever done because I, to be clear, I didn't, it was I didn't come up with the idea that I, all due respect and, and credit goes to Todd Shulman, David Bernard, and then Lee Eisenberg and Gene Stepnitsky came up with the idea. But when they sold it and they needed someone to actually make and create this thing, that's when they called me because I was finishing Bora and I knew how to do weird, complicated, challenging stuff, which no one else really knew how to do. And they said, hey, can you like design and execute and deliver this world, please? With that, after taking the idea, it was very important to me that tonally, as a message, as an experience of both the viewer and actually more importantly for everyone involved in making it, including, of course, Ronald, first and foremost, that this would feel like a positive experience. This would feel like something that could speak to the good in people and to intention Mm -hmm. and ultimately would be something that people would feel happier for having watched than not and really wanted to create a project, a show, a world that that would reflect those feelings for me because I do care very much about how people are treated. I care a lot about work conditions and I care a lot about the message that we put out there into this world. Mm -hmm. So uh, to get quite sincere for a moment, that jury duty was kind of my test case. Mm-hmm. to see if you could make something that people really like and also treat people decently as you're making it. And can you put those two things together? And as much as anything else, the success of Jury Duty has been almost like an existential validation for me or some tremendous sense of relief and joy and happiness that you can mm-hmm. put this stuff out there and that people will find it. And sometimes many people will find it. And upon experiencing it, they will tell their friends about it and their loved ones and say, you too should watch this thing. So um, yeah, yeah, Jury is, um, it's very special to me in that way. So I heard about it because I was at a friend's birthday dinner and one of your, one of your colleagues was there and I don't remember her name. So I feel bad about it. She's really good friends with Annabelle that 
Um, oh, Alexis San Pietro, who yeah. is one of our producers, and she is the woman who essentially found Ronald Gladden, and she is a, a world-class expert in finding the real people that you'll see in that stuff. She'd worked with me on the previous two projects, Sasha, as well, so she was the first person I brought yeah. over because I knew she would be able to find him for carry she, so she was like catty corner really far away from me at this birthday dinner. And so we didn't get to talk at all, really, except for somehow in the dinner, they were talking about her newest project that was about to premiere, which was called Jury Duty. And she, they said it was genius, like the person who was talking her up was saying it was genius and that we had to watch it. And so it was on my list that I wanted to watch. And then I saw the premise and I was really nervous because my biggest fear in life is being the butt of a joke. Mm-hmm. And or having something going on around me that everyone is in on but me. So I was really nervous to watch it because I like was like it, it's so close to almost being bullying, like so close if you didn't get it totally right. But it was that last episode and how he was celebrated. And I don't want to be any spoilers but you know, everyone knows the premise from the beginning, so I don't think I'm spoiling it. But it was a testament to humanity in such a good, positive way that I was really happy with the experience of watching it. But it was that kind of existential Truman Show thing, or are we in assimilation type feeling, and goes back to... And whenever I watch those things, I think what I see in most cinema a lot is a reimagination of Plato's allegory of the cave, which is like the core of it all of if you know the secrets of the world, do you want to know them? Do you actually want to know them? And so anyway, that was my experience watching it and you beautifully executed. And so it's rare that people get to make things in general in this industry, let alone make things that they can be super proud of. And so congratulations. Well, thank you. And by the way, you're absolutely right in that, you know, we were not handled in the correct manner. This would have been a shocking and awful experience. And at all times, we were two degrees away from doing this the wrong way, not through intention, but through accident. Or if you were, if we didn't think long and hard enough about something, if we didn't give due diligence and due process to our, to the way that we made this thing, it, it certainly could have been that. And, but for us, the North Star was always a hero's journey. And having our hero, who obviously we didn't know who that was until you know a few weeks necessarily before, before shooting, because we built the whole show in a writer's room, not knowing who our hero was going to be. The intention was always for them to come out of the experience and be able to look back on it and be proud of the experience and carry that with them for the rest of their lives. And that really guided us on every single decision from macro through to micro. I will say this, uh, truthfully, I know that in success, our show is going to spawn a lot of imitators. It's going to be a thing. It's going to be, there are going to be a hundred shows over the next five years, which are going to be like, it's jury duty, but, and on the one hand, that's flattering because I think we've broken the barrier and showed what can be possible in this sort of hybrid world in a way that people didn't think could be pulled off before. My nervousness, to be honest, is that there will not be that level of care and thought towards the real person's experience. Because not many folks have done this. the world of this kind of fake world building and creation and stuff. Is, it's quite a small one. And uh, I'm sure people will, can have really good ideas on paper. Oh, it's jury duty, but burn. And they go, oh, it's genius. Incredible. What a great new spin on it. But if you don't apply that level of thought and care to the hero's experience, 
then there's a tremendous moral undertaking here, I'll say that much. And we were extremely aware of the fact that the moment Ronald landed with us, he was our responsibility, not just whilst we were shooting, but truthfully, for the rest of his life. Because mm-hmm. this is an experience that would be with him for the rest of life. So if you're going to do a show like this, you have to know that you morally owe a duty of care to someone for the rest of their life. And are you willing to do that and take that on board? Because it's very stressful. And if you get it wrong, then why you're going to question why you're even doing it in the first place. Yeah, it, th- those ethical things are all are immensely valid. And like I said, I'm really happy that we were able to just t- to do what we wanted to do and pull it off and that Ronald now is as happy as he is that to me is the biggest relief of all yeah is he gonna work in media right now I think he's just enjoying being Ronald Gladden and <laughs> I'm happy to report that he is the same guy he has not changed he does not have any airs newfound Hollywood airs and graces and the trappings of fame and all that kind of stuff I mean, he's going to every bloody massive event under the sun because everyone loves him and he's a very famous person. But he's still the same dude. He's still open-hearted, open-minded, can chat with anyone at any level of society. He's just a a good, regular dude and he's still having a good time. What he does in the future, I think he will... He's still figuring that out right now, but I think he will probably want to use his fame and his platform to help folks which is very on brand for Ronald because for folks who can remember watching the show in the eighth episode when he's talking about the experience, one of the things he talks about is open my eyes to kind of help people even more. Good Lord, Mm -hmm. you're being celebrated for being a nice guy and your main takeaway is I should be doing more. So I think he will probably turn his attentions to that and formalizing some way of making that his sort of living and career for as long as he wants to. Yeah, well, that's great. Yeah. So something else you said that, that stuck with me was that you wanted to make the making of it feel, be as ethical and good. And anyone who works in entertainment, I started my career working at the Weinstein Company. So I know how hard working in this industry can be and why there's no good reason for it in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. other than tradition. And I remember I did marketing for a good four years digital marketing of my life. And I went and I heard the woman who was running Burberry, who turned Burberry Digital, speak about marketing before she went to run something for Apple. And she talked about how to make Burberry digital and forward thinking, she had to start with the internal culture of the company. And then the marketing would be authentic because online and digital world and video, you're always you can feel when something's authentic or not. And especially with comedy, you can always tell when people had fun making a movie mm. or a show. You could just feel it. You, you see the outtakes and you're laughing still with them at the outtakes. And unfortunately, I think with some of the thriller and the drama, there is thriller and dra- like that is happening off screen also. And so if you could speak more to trying to make the process of making things better, I, a very good friend of mine, her name is Rosie Eden Ellis. I'm going to shout her out. Like I've, never, I've never mentioned this before in any interviews, but we worked together once at a quite a tumultuous little company in Soho in London, and it wasn't the most fun experience. And I would go as far as to say it was a pretty heinous experience, actually. 
And I remember once she came into work and her mum had shared with her some article in either the Financial Times or something like that saying that a study had been, a pretty robust study had been done and it showed that companies that operated under a sort of structure of fear tended to be more productive than companies that didn't. And that was just horrifying to, to see. And it's reinforced our experience at the time, which was we were getting really truly pummeled by someone, but we were working our butts off and, you know, we were going above and beyond our capacity and, and managing to pull these things off. But it was awful, truly awful experience. That article, that experience directly informed the making of jury duty. And it's something I'm not, I've not really shared with people because it's something I've held in my heart for a very long time. And I wanted, if given the opportunity, to really see if you could do something as a direct answer to this article and a rebuttal mm -hmm. of it. And... Yeah, obviously there are hard days on set on jury. It's very stressful. And obviously not, we weren't singing Kumbaya every day and we weren't all high-fiving every single second because it was an extremely stressful shoot in terms of concept. We were creating Truman Show in a way that no one had ever done it before. On probably a lot smaller budget than the Truman Show had in that film. And everyone knew that if they made a mistake, they could destroy the entire enterprise. Those are that, that, That's a huge weight of responsibility, not just on producers, writers, actors, what have you, on every single crew member, technician who takes part in this thing. And everyone is aware of the pressure of it. But we respected everyone to be able to do great work and to recognize great work when we saw it. And we understood that the only way we could do this would be to do it together. And so a lot of the process was fairly democratized in terms of whenever we would have our morning debriefs or briefings or then our afternoon debriefs, it was very much a community led thing. And I wanted that to be the case that the floor would be open to folks to talk about their experiences. Because of course, no one had ever done this before either. We, there was no blueprint. There's a blueprint in my mind that I created, but it hadn't been road tested. And of course, things change when you apply them in real life. And so it was very important to me that we took stock of what everyone had to say and their feelings about things. I mean, the cast very much led from the front on that respect. And it was very important to know what they had to say because they were in there, they were with Ronald. And again, going back to the ethical experience, mm -hmm. they could sense his energies. They could sense if things weren't playing well, if he felt uncomfortable in certain moments. So we had to pay tremendous attention to that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, with Jury, it was one of those things where it struck me that... If everyone who's working on it is invested beyond just getting a paycheck, which of course is a tremendously important thing to do. We work to get paid and to live. There's no, that's the transaction, right? Mm -hmm. But if beyond that, they could also feel like they were trusted and they had a tremendous responsibility in what they were doing, whatever their role was, maybe their work would be better. And I think that's what ended up happening. And personally, I think the work that was done on the show by everyone, every crew member, every head of department, was the best stuff I've ever seen because the level of detail they had to work to and the pressure under which, again, it's one thing if you go onto a movie set and it's some like Transylvanian castle and you look at it and it's this big stage, you're like, oh, wow, a big Transylvanian castle, how cool. If you go up to the walls and touch them, it's, oh, it's like styrofoam, but it's been spray painted. Or if you look down to the side, you can see that it's not finished and it doesn't have a back to it. On camera, it looks amazing for this big $300 million movie, right? On our show, that would not cut it. On our show, it had to be a world that was completely believable to touch, to press, to smell, to whatever. And so everyone had to work to that level of not camera ready, real world ready. 
And yeah. it's a it's not a flashy show. It's not sci-fi. There's not lots of period costumes and all that kind of stuff. But from, from in my opinion, the work that everyone did to create this real world was peerless. And I've never seen anything like it. It's truly amazing. That's really cool. In making Jury Duty, you had a child, yes. right? Like you had a young child. Which... She was born. She was born a couple of days after we finished shooting with Ronald. Oh, well, that's a blessing that she made it yeah. to the end. <laughs> Yeah, that was terrifying. I did not, yeah. that was, that we did not have great contingency plans in, in, in the event that I had to go, but hey, my daughter's name is Hazel. She was good enough to wait, which is great. Oh, I love that name. It was on my list. My son's name is Miles. Oh, um, lovely. Thank you. So you're making the kind of work that you like. Are, have you looked at content differently since your daughter was born? No, I haven't. It's still the same. I can only go with, the older I get, the more experience I get in this very silly business. And it is, again, a very silly business. The, the older I get, the more I'm sure of the fact that I just got to go with my, in, my initial instincts and my initial guts on things. And anytime I, I over question that or try and game theory something out from too many different angles, I end up coming back to the same place anyway, which is just go with your gut. And that still is what's going to guide me moving forward. I, I, at the moment, obviously, you know, jury duty is a sort of feel good phenomenon. And I love that. And I certainly feel like when it comes to dealing with real people, that if you don't have a very specific intention behind it and a very well-constructed plan to take someone to this great place, you've got to think about why you're doing it. Unless you're someone like a Sasha who is doing it because he is highlighting and exposing bigotry and prejudice and all that kind of stuff. Outside of that, because I don't just do these wacky projects, I also do traditional scripted things as well. Yeah, I still want to be able to, to push the button and I still want to be able to ask uncomfortable questions. And I still think that, that art has a place in this world to, to unsettle and to make us think about things. And certainly the company I started with, Jason Walloner, after Borat, who is an incredible filmmaker, he just did Paul T. Goldman for Peacock, which if, which was criminally underappreciated during the award season, but an amazing piece of work itself. It's Paul T. Garden? Goldman. G sorry, Gold my accent. I'll do it in American. Paul T. Goldman. And that's available on, on, on Peacock. It's similarly, it's a hybrid. It's part documentary, part part. Fantasy, it's astonishing. It's singular. Janus is, is an amazing creator. It has teeth to it and it's unsettling at points and it really asks, it begs questions of the audience. And I think there's still room for that. And I think there is a moral responsibility, I think, for anyone who has the opportunity and the privilege to make stuff to sometimes just ask some questions about where we are, what we're doing, where we're going. And yeah. so I think for me, it's going to be a balance of those things between stuff which I know. I can just feel very good about making and then things which I think are questions that need asking or experiences which are subversive or unusual or will bend a viewer's mind in and back on itself. That's where I am. And frankly, Hazel coming around doesn't really have much to do with that yet. Other than the fact that I hope when she's old enough to appreciate the stuff that she's proud of the work that I did. That's the only, that's the only th sort of real. Yeah. And also just, I can't watch stuff now that has, <laughs> has issues with kids. Like I've been watching this show on Apple TV called Swagger and mm -hmm. these boys are in bad situations because of prejudice. And I'm weeping because I see these boys, like they look like men, but they're high school boys. And I'm like, oh, they're still kids. And I'm like going crazy in a way that I don't think I would have before kiddos. I would say having a child watching stuff, 
change has changed very aggressively. My tolerance, I guess, my ability to withstand certain things, especially when it comes to, I guess, just nastiness. And I mean, like real nastiness, anything kid related. Yeah, it, that changes remarkably and almost instantaneously. And I also, I now can, it works in the other way as well. And that commercials can make me cry now. <laughs> and I never would have thought that appendage of capitalism would make me cry. But commercials, if they hit a certain tone, especially if it's father daughter or something to do with parental sacrifice to make sure your daughter can have, your child can have the thing that you never, any of that kind of stuff. Holy cow. I can just, I go immediately. So yeah, no, definitely having a daughter has changed the way that I view stuff. That, that's for sure. Yeah. Is your daughter allowed to watch screens? She's, we haven't really, we've, not really done screens. Yeah, it's just not something, if she doesn't really know the existence, we don't watch a huge amount of TV in front of her, generally speaking. The only sort of live stuff that we will watch on the TV during the daytime will be sport, because I am a huge sports fan addict. And my wife loves sports as well, and she tolerates my addiction. So Hazel will see occasionally Manchester United playing soccer or USC playing college football or those things, and she'll have a sense of what's going on. But that's not enough to trip whatever like serotonin in her brain makes her want to be addicted to this thing. So no, not much. We did have some. We did fly to the East Coast for July Fourth, and we were very scared about that. She was fourteen months at the time. And so as a doomsday scenario, we loaded up an iPad and we're like, okay, this will be the break glass in case of emergency option. And we ended up being tarmacked for five and a half hours in Philadelphia, which was pretty horrific. And about two hours in, she was going crazy, God bless her. And we got the iPad out and like, we could justify it in this moment. Within 80 seconds, she didn't give a hoop. She didn't care. She was too young for it. And so then she went back to just try to destroy her seat. So not much screen time right now. I think we'll probably be quite mindful of it moving forward. But that being said, I would love her to, I'd love it if she develops a passion for watching TV and movies, especially like good stuff. Yeah, I, I think I, I let Miles watch screen. I'm a single mom by choice. So if I need a shower, I need to make sure that he stays in the pack and play. And so he, he also loves trucks like really loves trucks. So I can literally just put on an hour of garbage trucks, picking up garbage on YouTube, which exists. And he will watch that and be like, big truck, red truck, <laughs> green truck, <laughs> over and over again. So that, but I think to, I want him to have a movie theater experience. So I've been trying to plan it and he turns two in December. So I might rent a theater and do the red balloon. Oh, that's lovely. That's awesome. So if you're in LA and you think Hazel's ready for it. Oh, very cool. Thank you. Yeah, that'd be amazing. <laughs> you're welcome. So somewhere in the early December, I'm going to do that. That's Just, so cool. You know, I don't, I didn't do a first birthday really because I don't believe, really believe in young kids having birthday no, parties. Neither do we. It was weird. We're like, we're not, what, he, she's not going to remember this. What are we doing? Just stick a cake in front of her face and yeah. take a photo. Exactly. That's basically yeah. what I did. But I thought a 30 minute movie so they each get red balloons at the end, some cupcakes, and then bye-bye. Lovely. Have fun in the car. That's, de the that's delightful. <laughs> okay, so our last question is, and you're probably, it's the same probably for your daughter and my son. What movie should we show them to make them fall in love with cinema? It's one of, it's Wally or it's Finding Nemo. And it's, okay. I think Andrew Stanton at that time, 
just yeah, Apex are at that time, Doctor, Stan, all that stuff. They just they like hit this insane groove of storytelling. And I watched those both as ad- as an adult. I did not have children. I was in my they've been twenties for both of those, and uh, cried my face off. I was blown away by the visuals, completely enraptured by the storytelling. And I will say, going to like going to film school and academically studying sort of structure, especially film structure, the curse of that is. When you watch ninety nine percent of movies, you all you to the minute. If you know the running, if you know in advance the running time of the movie, you can basically, especially if it's a studio movie, you can basically predict exactly what is going to happen at every one time because it all falls into a certain place. This sort of three act structure. And our teacher was so bloody good that we really, even within every fifteen minutes, you could know exactly what choices would be made in the turns, negative or positive, all that kind of thing. And that ruined <laughs> movies for me for a little bit. And then I watch those movies, which still do fit those structures, but they're so well crafted and so well layered that you forget about it and you just let the magic trick into your mind and into your heart and let it take you away, which is the purpose of movies in the first place. And Wally, that first half hour is, I think, some of the best stuff that's ever been made by humans. And the whole of Finding Nemo is just this extraordinary experience. And I will say, of course, now, being a parent, that challenge for Marlon in terms of the freedom you give your child and knowing at some point you have to let them go, that they have to mm-hmm. find a way to live in the world for themselves. What a, what a powerful, evergreen question and a thing that affects all of us. And also for the child and understanding where that sort of what might feel like overprotectionism or like smothering, where that might come from. They understand what it means to a parent and why we do this is because we love them and we don't want them to experience harm. I'm getting slightly emotional thinking about it right now. So those would probably be those, those two movies, those two movies, once you get to a certain age to, to be able to appreciate them, that that, that, that would be it. Cause they're, they're basically my version of cinema heaven, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the one thing I'm learning from listening to these convert or having these conversations with kids of older children is it's like timing is everything. If you show the movie, find, Finding Nemo has a little bit of a scary beginning. Yeah, terrifying. So if you show it too early, she's not going to want to watch mm-hmm. it or the kids will want to turn it off. And, you know, and the way some kids won't watch anything that has something bad happen to the character. And so... It's really interesting hearing how the personalities of the different children relate to what films when in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, but those are great recommendations. I put Finding Nemo on sometimes in the background and he'll watch little bits of it, but we haven't really done. He's too little. I, I figure it's probably still not for a couple of years yet. And I'm willing to wait. In the meantime, I'll put whatever YouTube guff will take her through <laughs> but when she when i feel like she's ready to when i feel like she has 80 minutes of attention span in her then uh, i, I want to do that but also true i'm annoying enough when i'm watching a movie that i love with my wife that she hasn't watched and if i even see her glance at her phone for a moment i will like pause it i will turn on the lights and be like are we gonna do this properly or not are we gonna are we gonna <laughs> so i'm a bit psychotic in that way in the first place so i'm gonna give my daughter enough latitude to be able to get to a point where she can actually give the attention so i'm, I'm probably i'm gonna probably do it later rather than sooner to be honest yeah awesome well thank you so much for this conversation i could talk to you for another hour there's so much interesting stuff for us to cover so i really appreciate you joining me today well, thank you so much for having me jessica I really this has been lovely and it's been it's lovely to talk about you know it's this thing that we're very passionate about right and it happens to be 
you know, our profession as well. I think a lot about what we're putting out into the world and why we do it. And obviously our children are our legacy and, and they're the ones that follow us and, and take up in our footsteps. So it's, it's exciting slash terrifying to think about Hazel's own, my daughter's own journey going through this stuff. And for me, I, I hope that she carries that same passion. Movies and television have given me a tremendous amount of joy. And I mm-hmm. think they, when done well, they can be really beautiful and singular experiences. And I hope that she is able to experience that joy in the same way that, that, that I have as well. If you enjoyed the conversation, please don't forget to like and subscribe. New episodes release every Wednesday. And leave a comment and let me know which movie you think I should show my son. Until next time, take care.